I'm sure many of us can look back uh, over the years and look at that, that one person in high school that when you went back for your 10-year reunion, you said, whoa, what happened to you? Because they improved with age, you know, as so many people do, right? Physically, you know, people don't blossom till later, often. And so if you're a young person here, I say that as a word of encouragement to you. You know, if you're one of those people who look in the mirror always, you know, shrugging at yourself, believe me, I look at you and you're beautiful. I thank God for you, our young people. I'm glad you're here. But our appearance isn't what it's all about. What's most important is who we are in Christ and shining his character. But we all know that kind of person, right? The late bloomer. You know, all of a sudden you came back for your high school reunion and you said, wow, Carlene, you know, where you been? Same thing spiritually, though, right? There were some people who went away to college and met Christ. And as they did so, came back, you noticed there was something different about them. They had a glow. They had a shine. They had a compelling. They weren't who they once were. And you might have been excited. You might not have been excited (laughs) back then. I don't know. But we all know, and we asked ourselves, what's the turnaround? I mean, what's the deal? Well, that's what the heart of John's message in Matthew gets to today as we walk through Advent together. This week, our theme is peace. We saw that in the Isaiah readings, that the world is looking for peace, and they're doing everything they can to potentially secure it, but there's no peace ultimately outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the good news that the church has. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. What we heard today, is, quoting Isaiah 40, is the whole theme for all of Advent, quite honestly. It serves as the main theme for the season. So as we get ready and we do our preparations for Christmas... We should not neglect to prepare our lives for Jesus as the light of the world. For his light penetrated a dark world which allowed all of us to see the Messiah and to have hope for the future. And so last week in our, we had a theme of hope. and We looked at Matthew 24, for those of you who weren't here, where we were reminded about the reality that Christ will come again. And that enables us to understand the possible significance for modern day events today. Because even no matter how low the valley is, there will be one day where it will all be made right. So that is a a secondary preparation that we do during the Advent week. Because amidst all the twinkling lights and the decorations, all the gleeful holiday songs and carols, the festive parties, the holiday parties... Cyber Week. used to be Cyber Monday. Now it's Cyber Week, you know. Um, Amidst all that, there's a more somber spirit that resides. In case you missed it, did you know a person tried to kill some students at Ohio State this week? Thank God our students were safe. A policeman was killed in Spokane, Washington. Friday night at a rave in Oakland... They think 40 people died in a fire in the warehouse. They had nine yesterday, but they believe up to 40 young people died. You see, amidst all the the glitz and glow, there is true sorrow and mourning 
that interrupts the mainstream revelry and festivity of the Christmas season. And so as Advent goes on, I think the more sobering note, the more uh, preparatory note, the more call to turn around repentance is very helpful for believers and non-believers alike. For during the Advent season, there's another voice which calls to us from the margin of society that calls for a turnaround, belief, righteousness, and justice. And that voice is John the Baptist. I encourage you, and I hope you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can quickly download it on an ESV app. It's all there. Or you can look at the back of the bulletin. The season of Advent, like John the Baptist, calls for preparation, reflection, and for turnaround and preparation for the coming of God's anointed one. For all who would declare Jesus the Messiah, preparation involves aligning our lives in the values of God's kingdom, not our own. So what does Matthew's gospel inform us of? First, it informs us how turnaround comes to us. Two, what it looks like. And three, what can we do to turn around? How turnaround comes to us, what it looks like, and what can we do to turn around? First point, how, how this turnaround comes. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The way, turnaround, or repentance is the biblical word that comes to us, is through the ministry of preaching. Notice, it doesn't say, in those days, John the Baptist came to give a TED talk. All right? John the Baptist didn't come to give a homily. John the Baptist didn't come to give a pep talk. He came preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preaching in the wilderness. And thousands came. And that's not flashy. I mean, Madonna had that, word, that song in the 80s, Papa Don't Preach. It has a negative, it's a negative term in our culture, but the Bible doesn't hold it as such. Preaching has a, has a message and a content that God has always used to penetrate hearts. I know it did mine, and I know it does yours as well. And therefore, the message is one of turnaround. In other words, repentance. Repentance means a 180 degree turn change in heart, mind, and will. That when you recognize the truth that God reveals to us, we repent and we change. It was Churchill, after visiting the U.S. after World War II, he was aboard a train bound from Missouri with President Truman. They were in a special car which had the presidential seal hung up on the wall, and Truman noticed that Churchill was looking at the seal, and Truman explained that he had had the head turned on the presidential seal because the head was always, up to that time, turned toward the arrows held in one talon. And he, he had the artist turn the head the other way toward the olive branch. Because they had just been through World War II, right? 
You know, he wanted the president to be a sign of peace. And Churchill, in a shrewd and winsome way, said, well, why not put the eagle's head on a swivel? That way you could turn it to the right or the left, depending on the occasion warranted. My friends, we tend to view repentance that way. And sometimes we think we need it, and sometimes we think we don't. Well, you know what? As the believer in Christ, we need it all the time. That's why we do the summary of the law at the beginning of the service, to catch our attention. Didn't you love the collect today? By the way, it's my favorite collect. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Thank God the new prayer book is putting that back where it belongs in the second Sunday of Advent, rather than like a 30th Sunday of Trinity, which you don't always get to. Which is one of the reasons why we left our old outfit. You know, because they didn't uphold the value of the scriptures. And pray that throughout the week. It'll change your life. But the beauty that's happening here is we don't put our head on a swivel from repentance. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and recognize that we need it every day. Maybe some of us every hour. Maybe some of us, like Luther, every ten minutes, you know. Whatever, but the point is a recognition of our sin and the fact that it comes to us through the word of God properly preached, not the preacher's opinion. Because if it was up to me, I'd probably preach upon the hot stove league and the deals that are being made in baseball right now or the penguin score last night. You don't need to hear that. What God's people need is the word of God. Secondly, what does it look like? Well, here, the reader learns of the kingdom values when John exhorts his mixed audience of humble followers, thousands of them, by the way, and a bunch of snakes. Look at verse 8. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the effect that it has on us, that all of a sudden, as we properly repent, We bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. You know, and if you compare this with Luke's narrative, Luke continues with that three groups come to John asking him, well, what do I have to do to to repent like this you're talking about in the kingdom? John tells those who have an abundance to share food and clothing to share those with those who have none. He exhorts tax collectors in that passage to exercise fair business practices. He tells soldiers not to take money by force or to accuse anyone falsely and to be content with their wages. You see, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is immensely practical. To bear good fruit involves the treatment of others with generosity, with fair measures, with a proper use of our wealth and our resources and a sense of contentment. That's a pretty timely word in our culture today. Because there's all kinds of mistreatment of others. There's all kinds of perpetual cycles of violence, fear, and the temptation to hoard our resources that tempts us to, to turn this season of Christmas into one of perpetual materialism and mindless consumption. Instead, Advent preparations can be very practical Provisions of bringing forth fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And as repentance has its way in us, which literally means a turnaround, as I've mentioned, might there be a turning away from that which diminishes life in Christ and diminishes blessing our neighbors, which, as we do so, will provide us blessing and abundant life. You see, the life that is offered in Jesus is poured out for the blessing of others where we live, where we work, where we play. As opposed to the snakes. I hope you caught that. This, this is phenomenal. I, I think John's a rather direct little fellow, don't you think? You know, <laughs> this is not seeker sensitive. He said, verse 7, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's thousands of people that have gone into the Judean wilderness. It, it, this would be like if John the Baptist was in Cleveland, we would all be going out to Wadsworth to hear him, out, way out in the country, you know? We don't go to Wadsworth to hear people publicly speak, right? You go downtown. But that's the beauty and the paradox of the gospel. God uses the, the weak things, the small things, to shame the strong and to glorify the Lord. And all these people in thousands are going to, to hear John, who doesn't have a microphone, no PA system at all, and he's calling them to repent and believe. You think you have to have a fancy evangelism outline? No. John just said, hey, repent and believe. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. But not the snakes. Who are these guys? Well, they're the Pharisees. Those are the moralists of their age. They know more Bible than you and I ever had because they grew up memorizing it inside and out. They quoted today's collect in Hebrew, probably in a little bit of Greek. You know, there was that kind of teaching that they grew up with. They knew the word of God, but they added to it, boy. They added to it hundreds of laws, 600 plus laws that showed your obedience to God the King, they said. And John would have nothing to do with it. Then there were the Sadducees, who also knew the word of God, but didn't buy it. <laughs> didn't buy all of it, and they didn't believe in the, the spiritual part at all. They just believed when you died, you died. That's it. And so, in other words, in today's culture, they were more like the, the, the liberal revisionist church of today. They pick and choose what they wanted, but yet they had all the outward trappings of religion. They prayed. They went to church. They lit the Advent candles. They lit the altar candles. Not lit, right? We're going to have to replace those things. Anyway, the, the point is, they were doing all the outward things that the community would have said, well, that's a believer, that's a leader, that's an upstanding man. But it was nothing more than self-righteousness. And what John's trying to get to them is to say, who invited you here? No, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, because they're not going to repent. They're coming for his baptism, but he knows that they're, it's just a show. It's just going through the motions. And so, in today's culture, the Pharisees are the moralists that add to the law. They're the Jesus plus gospel people. You know, 
You give your life to Jesus, plus you need to do this in order to stay right in the kingdom of heaven. I don't, there's some around, I don't see many of those guys around anymore in our culture, really, quite frankly. But they're there. There's a few of them, you know, that don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, you know, that type of legalistic, don't play cards, you know. My mom grew up in the Southern Methodist Church. Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas was her denomination. And she couldn't wait to leave it. Because she married my dad, who was an Episcopalian, who's then, you know, you, you can, we can have a drink. And I, my dad smoked a pipe, you know, and, and uh, my mom really liked to dance. Her particular favorite was Benny Goodman, you know, the big band era. It wasn't raunchy. It was just fun dance. The moralists would have nothing to do with it. And if you're not living according to them, whatever you want to put on the end of the gospel, that's them. John would have nothing of it. And the Pharisee today in the Anglican world would say, well, I have joined the journey group, and I've memorized all the scriptures, and I've also memorized 39 articles, and you should too. It's an offer of grace. Everything we do at Christ Church is to help people walk in Christ. It's not for meritorious salvation. <laughs> but the Sadducees, the other way around, the Sadducee today, you know, they confess faith in church, but in Christ, but they don't necessarily follow it that much at all. We see it all the time, the way our culture twists the scriptures to mean what they want to say rather than what it actually says. You know, so the Pharisee says, I went to church, and boy, that counts, right? Well, not in and of itself, it doesn't. Should you come to church? Absolutely. Because we need the word. We need one another. You know, I need a donut, you know. You know what I'm saying. We need one another. But the Sadducee says, eh, stayed up late for that Penn State game. I think I won't. I'll miss it today. But then they go out in the community, and the whole community thinks that they're a church-going Christian person. And when they do come to church, man, it's more about the ritual than it is the substance. See, the reality is, when you're placing your trust in anything but the finished work of Christ, which they were doing, they've missed the point. It's all about Him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Sadducees have a problem with that today. The Sadducees say, well, that's, that's just exclusive. We're more inclusive than that. To which we could ask them, well, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Do you believe that? They say, no. Well, you're excluding me. Are you not? And secondly... Jesus is the one who said this. I didn't make that up. And the reality is, he is describing reality. All religions cannot be true, for they contradict each other on several points. And Jesus is just trying to come along and explain what reality is, and he made these claims, and he verified these claims by his perfect life, by all the miracles he worked, chief among them, his miracle of the resurrection. He, the only one who lived the perfect life. And so therefore, my friends, as Christians, we are most inclusive for God so loved the world. 
All who believe in him should have everlasting life. It's offered to everybody, not so in other worldviews. It's not necessarily offered to everybody. The gospel is, and it transcends culture. Imagine I took you to my favorite uh, coffee shop, Tim Hortons. I love Tim Hortons coffee. All right? So I took you to Tim Hortons and got a donut and a coffee, and I saw the person put rat poison in it. Your coffee. And we sit down at the table, and I go, did I just see what I think I saw? And so you're about to drink it. What would the loving thing for me to do? It would stop you. I would say, no, don't drink it. Now, you could have two thoughts. You could think, well, thank you for saving my life. Or you could say, it didn't happen. You know? Come on, you're denying me a good cup of joe. Is that narrow-minded? Because I think it's going to hurt you? I could be wrong, but that doesn't make me narrow-minded. And Christians are not narrow-minded people. Because we believe that there's a real heaven and there's a real hell and we don't want our friends to go there, therefore we reach out to them with the love and truth of the gospel. And John will have none of that Sadducee religion. He will have none of that gospel plus Jesus religion. He will take only the true hot gospel served up like a hot steak on a platter for you and me. So the question becomes for us then, like Patrick Morley writes, that the church's integrity problem is the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract the sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. He goes on to say, it's a revival without reformation. It's a revival without repentance. My friends, true repentance brings a life that bears fruit in keeping with that repentance. So finally, what can we do to turn around? Well, John's ministry, as we saw, and his baptism was one of repentance only. And he states in verse 11 that there was coming a time when there would be a new and better baptism. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's not talking about a water baptism. He's talking about the beautiful act that when the Holy Spirit falls on a person and that heart catches on fire and changes, and boom, that person now is a follower of Jesus. And when we get that, that changes everything. And the baptism that we undergo is an outward and visible sign of that grace that's extended to us in Jesus Christ. And the baptism now represents both repentance and resurrection. You're a new creature. You're not the same that person that you were. And therefore, our lives demonstrate this sign. We don't repent in order to muster up more strength. Don't think that. What we do is repent because of the great love of God in Christ and we see where we're falling short. That's all. And therefore, because we're falling short at certain times, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For all you believers here today, that's good news. Because you recognize that this repentance we're talking about, that the fruit we're talking about, we can't do that in our own strength. It's just something the Lord does in us. And therefore, we can start to be a little more intentional in the way we're paying attention to our neighbors, where they live, work, and play. And so sometimes over this Advent, maybe I can do something nice for someone I've been praying for. 
Repentance involves a heart change, a mind change, and a life change. But it's not one we do, it's something the Lord does in us. Do you obey God to get something? Do you obey God or try to walk the Christian life to get blessings? My friends, that's the the brood of viper faith. (laughs) That's religion. And God won't have it. True belief obeys out of a gratitude for what this Savior did for us. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we couldn't die for ourselves so that we can have the fullness of life that John is asking his followers to follow in. And as we listen to John's voice in this season of preparation and repentance, that's true turnaround. We hear his prophetic call, for he calls out of our busyness, our preoccupation with comfort, and my own self-interested desires, and calls me to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And so through the din of all the other voices of our culture this Advent and Christmas season, may we strain to hear John's voice this season. Repent. The kingdom's here. Let us bear lives with great fruit in keeping with such repentance. In closing, I think one of the greatest illustrations of all literature of a changed life, a great turnaround, is the story of Pygmalion. Written by George Bernard Shaw. You know it as My Fair Lady. Eliza Doolittle is sitting out on the London streets just trying to be sell flowers, and she just doesn't like her life. But she's from the East End of London. If you know the East End of London, it's rough. Just why it's called a midwife. All right? If you, if you want what East London was like, I think it still is like that in many ways. Um, it's a rough, rough place, and the, the people there aren't cultured, shall I say. But she wants something better for herself. So she runs into Henry Higgins, Professor Henry Higgins, who's, for lack of better words, a speech pathologist. He's going to teach her the finer ways of of, uh, life and make sure that she is able to be presented at a ball as a lady, not as a flower girl. And it's one of the greatest scenes in all of cinema. 1962, Audrey Hepburn coming in, not as Eliza Doolittle, but as a literal princess. Stunningly adorned, classy, walking down the staircase, and all eyes are fixed upon her. This is no flower girl. Because of the hard work that she's put in. My friends, because of the hard work that Jesus has put in for us, spiritually, we're adorned like that, for we are the bride of Christ, perfect in every way. May this Advent turn our heads to the cross. May this Advent we truly repent and believe and bear fruit, keeping with that repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we can come to you this season 
and, and look at John's voice amid all the voices, all the, the internet sales, all the, the store sales, and all the noise, the noise, the noise, as the Grinch says, and recognize that this voice calls to us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to him. Look to him. It's not an angry call. It's a confident, bold call that John gives the people. And Lord, may we too respond to that call because you have baptized many of us with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And one day when you return, you will separate the wheat. Lord, may we be among that wheat. And Lord, in all things, may this Advent we come out of it recognizing your great love more than ever before because of this repentance and because of your love for us upon the cross, Lord Jesus. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.